Well, thank you for joining me today in Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater, and I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. We're along with my partners, Anne and Crystal. We do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day that you are concerned about. So let's jump right in. What if you could do well financially while doing well in the world? Well, with sustainable investing, you can invest in ways that reflect your values without compromising the opportunity to seek attractive returns on your money. Many investors and the investment community, especially at UBS, believe there's a strong movement rising in socially and environmentally conscious products because the public is demanding a change. If you're going to create real impact, it has to be done with the same focus and level of intensity as your business. So, for example, over 2 billion people lack access to safe water on our planet, with 3.5 million mostly children dying annually from preventable waterborne diseases. So it's no wonder that sustainable investors want to help shape the world from poverty and hunger to combating climate change and injustice. The extent of the impact depends on the ambition and the nature of your investment. You don't have to look far to see what's happening here. I mean, just down the street from where we're recording this today in New York, the United Nations has created Sustainable Development Goals, known as SDGs. The UN has aimed to make the world a better place by 2030, and it's doing this through these 17 SDGs, covering everything from clean energy to zero hunger. Your value defines you, but do your investments reflect who you are? As a global leader in sustainable investing, I'm very proud of what my next two guests and their team are doing here at UBS to help people live up to their principles without compromising performance. So your investments don't only say good things about you, they do well for everyone. So let me welcome to Financially Speaking to explore more about sustainable investing, Casey Yoich who is the head of Sustainable Investing Solutions for Wealth Management USA, and Andrew Lee, who's head of Sustainable and Impact Investing for the Global Wealth Management and the Chief Investment Office here at UBS. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Mitch. Let's just start out with a definition here. So what is sustainable investing? Because there's so many different terms out there. Well, Mitch, I think you hit on it in your introduction. Sustainable investing, at its very basic level is about aligning values with investments. This can take many forms, but at UBS, there are three main strategies that we think about. And the first is exclusion. And this is, I think, the first thing that comes to people's mind when they think about the evolution of sustainable investing, which is socially responsible investing, or SRI. It's an approach where investors identify things that they don't want to have exposure to, like tobacco or weapons, and they exclude it from their portfolios. Something else that we think about in the second strategy is integration. And this is about integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into a traditional investment process. And you also said this, Mitch, before, in a way that doesn't sacrifice returns. So with the expectation for sort of comparable returns to traditional investments. And this is done not only to identify investment opportunities, but also to mitigate risks. And the third strategy is impact investing. And this is a very intentional way of investing that aims to have a specific and measurable environmental or social outcome alongside financial return. We typically see impact investing done through private markets, although we're seeing access to these types of investments now through public markets as well. So 
there's no one way to really do sustainable investing. I think that's an important thing to recognize. When we talk about sustainable investing being taking environmental, social, and governance factors into consideration when investing, there are really a lot of different ways to do so. So I think that's something that people need to think about. So what's most important as an end investor is really figuring out what you'd like to do with your investment capital. What are the things that are important to you? And that'll really help determine kind of what are the types of things that we can incorporate into a portfolio from a sustainable investing perspective. You know, first and foremost, we're still talking about sustainable investing, right? So it's investing and we're talking about market rate returns being a key objective. But as an investor, you should really take the time to think about what it is that you want, right? Do you simply want that certain exposures like firearms or tobacco aren't in your portfolio? That's more about values alignment and it doesn't necessarily think about investment risk and return. Or as Casey was saying, you know, do you want your capital to be invested in companies that perform better on all of these metrics? Or do you really want your capital to drive change? And that's really at the far end of the spectrum. But a lot of investors now come to us saying, I would like to drive change with my capital. So I think the first step, again, is really figuring out what's important to you, what are the things you want to do with your capital, and then you can figure out what are the types of approaches that Casey outlined earlier that match up best against your objectives. And maybe, Mitch, one thing just to note before we go on, these are about looking for options within your investment portfolio as distinct from philanthropy. Philanthropy is really equally important to addressing the broad challenges that we face as a society, but it's where there's no expectation of return or the potential for return is lower than what we would expect out of things that we put in our investment portfolio. So if we kind of go back in history and think about the 1960s, there would be some that would just say, oh, is this a fad or is this the way investing should be? Why is it so critical now? Yeah, this is a topic that we discuss a lot. Sustainable investing is not a fad. It's not niche investing. It is the future of investing. And maybe Andrew will talk a little bit about why now and the evolution here. But let me just point out a few data points, because I think that makes the case as to why this is really going to be the future of investing. At the end of 2018, $31 trillion globally were invested sustainably. $12 trillion of that was invested sustainably in the U.S., that equates to one in every $4 of professionally managed money. Wow. And in the U.S. alone, since 2014, we've seen a 16% compounded annual growth rate in assets invested sustainably, and we continue to see that trend continue. Hmm. I agree. I don't think this is a fad. Sustainable investing, in our view, is really an evolution of investing with investors, professional and individual alike, taking into consideration information that we believe or that they believe is increasingly important for long-term returns. And so environmental, social governance and other non-financial factors are more important than ever, given what we've seen in terms of the transition over the last four decades of what constitutes market value within the overall market indices, right? So over the last four decades, we've seen the S&P's market value as a proxy switch from 85% tangible assets and only 15% intangible assets to exactly the reverse. So non-financial or non-tangible assets actually make up a vast majority of the market value of the indices today. And so it's much more important than it was before to actually take these factors into consideration. So obviously the smart money is looking at sustainable investing. We know that now. How does this relate to investment performance? Because that's sort of the other side of the coin. I think increasingly people recognize that, and you have academic studies that show it, but taking environmental, social, and governance considerations into account actually drops to the bottom line. So you have lots of different instances where you've got loans, for example, that are tied to the sustainability of underlying company, direct relationship between better performance on sustainability measures 
and bottom line performance. Then you're starting to see companies change their business models, change their operations, supply chain management in order to reflect a focus on environmental, social, and governance. And it's because, A, it does better for the environment, but importantly, it does it for the bottom line. No one's doing this from a corporate perspective, from an altruistic perspective. They evaluate how it drops to the bottom line, and they go from there. So important to performance. And we as investors also think it's important to performance. Right. So does sustainable investing actually make a difference in the world, though? I mean, are companies, the large Fortune 500 companies, are they really changing behaviors? Are we addressing all of these major, major global challenges? And we'll dig a little deeper there in a little bit. But what do you think, Casey? And I think Andrew started to hit on it, that companies are responding to investor demands. Some of them may be doing it because it's the right thing to do, but many of them are doing it because their investors are demanding that they see changes in their practices and their behaviors. If you think about sustainable investing as a whole, first and foremost, it's about financial sustainability. And companies need to adapt and change their behavior if they want to create long-term value for their shareholders. And this change comes in new policies, new governance, things that are addressing these global changes that investors are demanding. And then when you look at the environmental and social component, There are things that we see in the headlines every day, whether it's eliminating single-use plastic straws, plastic bottles, plastic bags, mandating that a certain percent of females are in senior management, or committing to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. These are things that we're seeing every day companies are committing to, in large part because investors are demanding it. I agree with that. I mean, we're definitely seeing changes in corporate behavior. I think it started with disclosure with fund managers saying, you need to change this, you need to change that. It relates to long-term fundamentals. It relates to long-term returns. Companies are taking that step, and then they're increasingly changing their strategy around it. So Casey mentioned plastic straws. You see companies in the energy space changing their strategy in response to what they clearly see as a shift towards renewable energy. And then I mentioned before the examples of companies that tie their cost of borrowing to how sustainable they are. So I do think that corporate behavior is changing in response to not only the risk side, but also the opportunity side. So, you know, you talked about, are we actually addressing the challenges? We talked about the UN Sustainable Development Goals before. I think that a lot of corporates are now framing their business model in terms of, are they addressing these broader challenges? And so, yeah, I think we're on a path to changing. I do think it's important to recognize that the path we're on continues to be unsustainable, right? So the UN Sustainable Development Goals has identified the gap of trillions of dollars that's required in order to put us back on a more sustainable path by the year 2030. And we're just not there yet. So in addition to corporate changes in behavior, you've really got to see new investments come to the table. You've got to see new innovation that can start to put us on that trajectory towards a sustainable path. I happened to have attended a uh, global sustainable forum that UBS did a few weeks ago and saw an example of one of those that I thought was really cool and had to do with crop growth. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? I just thought that was just absolutely incredible. Definitely. So there was a presentation from this company that was focused on vertical farming. It's clear that we have uh, heavy resource usage that's involved in the current agricultural model today. It also takes an incredible amount of space to actually grow the crops that are needed. And we know from an overall demand perspective that we just don't grow enough food to feed all of the people that we have. And if you think about population growth, aging, urbanization, these are kind of mega trends that are actually driving the need for more food over time. And so we need to find ways of producing more food more efficiently. So this vertical farming presentation was incredible, right? It was something like 95% less water usage involved 
and a significant reduction in terms of the land that's required in order to farm the same amount of crops. So really needed from a sustainability perspective, but an incredible commercial opportunity too. Absolutely, and apparently very delicious. A lot of supermarkets are running around trying to get their product. Yeah, and she was saying that she could control the taste of the individual lettuces, which was fascinating. I think one example, too, just to drive the point home on the resource usage, this particular company grows 400,000 acres worth of food in a space less than the size of one acre, which is pretty incredible if you think about the yield from that. Yeah, that is something. Renewable energy. I mean, that's something that was on everybody's mind from windmills, certainly to solar. The U.S. has been kind of later in the game than Europe when it comes to that. What's happening in that area? And are there more and more companies coming into that space that people can invest in? Maybe I'll frame it a little bit before we get into that. Why are renewables important? We know that the current trends that we talked about, population growth, urbanization, are really heightening the rate of electricity consumption, right? Fossil fuels that are needed to generate the required levels of electricity in order to meet that demand are, as we know, finite and really incompatible with a sound environment. So it's important that we as a globe find a way to transition to alternative energy sources. A couple of stats, carbon emissions account for two-thirds of total greenhouse gas emissions globally. What's the impact of that on the climate? So the rate of the temperature increase has doubled in the last 50 years, which is quicker than at any other point in history. And that's really due to the increase in greenhouse gas emissions. If we think about the U.S. specifically, if we sourced 80% of our energy from renewables by 2050, we'd be able to reduce energy-related emissions by over 80%. So that's pretty significant. And I think you're starting to see companies respond to this in a way that's really reflective. So down in D.C. a couple of weeks ago with the World Bank and IMF spring meetings, there was a really a recognition from policymakers, corporates, and investors alike that it's important that we address the climate issue that's out there. So when we talk about companies that are starting to do things, recently Excel Energy, which is a U.S. energy company, it became the first major utility here in the U.S. to commit to 100% carbon-free electricity by the year 2050 and um, 80% reduction by the year 2030. So pretty significant goals being set by people. 3M, not a utility, but they've committed to power all of their global operations with 100% renewable energy targeting 50% by the year 2025. So people are starting to change their behavior, both from a production and consumption standpoint. So yeah, I think you're starting to see people uh, recognize that it's an issue. I think tying it back to the points we made earlier, the changes that are taking place to address these global challenges are doing so from a risk perspective. So companies that are implementing these changes are de-risking their revenue streams. They're diversifying their sources of revenue to move away from those streams that are going to be going away as our economy generally shifts to a lower carbon economy. And then from an opportunities perspective, there's tons of innovation taking place right now. So the companies that are really innovating in wind and solar and smart grid and, and technologies that are enabling all of these are the ones that are going to really outperform. We don't get political on this show. I'm not going to go there, but I'm just curious when you have a difficult political climate, let's say, that may not be as accepting as the rest of the world is, time still marches on. So these companies are still going out there and doing it, right? Even though we may not be officially in the agreement anymore, it hasn't stopped. That's right. You saw a corporate response when the U.S. withdrew from the Paris Agreement, right? And I think you see that reflected in investor sentiment as well. There was an initial, what happens now is the backdrop supportive of this. And then there was a realization that more needed to be done. Private capital really had to play a role as a complement to whatever was being done 
on the governmental side or on the public and philanthropy side. And so we've seen investors very interested in not just renewables, right, but climate-related investments and talk about any of the other themes that we think about. Yeah, speaking of other themes, another area that I've noticed great interest is actually more commonly called gender lens investing, which I believe, if I get it right, is the practice of investing for financial return while also considering the benefits to women. That's kind of a new space in some ways, in other ways, not so new. So what can you tell us about that? We're seeing a lot in the gender space, and UBS has put out a lot of research around gender lens investing. And there are countless studies that have determined that diversity in representation and therefore diversity in thought results in better outcomes overall for companies. There are all sorts of statistics that support this. And I think investors are starting to realize that diversity generally, but specifically around gender, is an opportunity for investment and a way to drive companies to make changes in ways that are increasing the number of female representation they have in senior management and on boards of directors. Obviously, a lot of change in that area. And UBS has a lot of really great pieces. We did a show recently talking about Own Your Worth. You can go back and listen to that episode. And clearly, that's a big area. Another area I thought I I might bring up that a lot of people are talking about since changes in the tax laws has to do with opportunity zones. I know that we get a lot of questions about that, certainly in my practice. So I thought maybe you could just kind of give us a little snapshot about that. Opportunity zones is an example of a tax incentive that was provided by the government in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed in December 2017. Now they've had to have some additional regulations come in behind that to actually support the implementation of it. But the basic idea is investors who are willing to take short-term capital gains that they've built up and reinvest those into long-term investments in distressed economic areas within the United States, they can get some tax benefits for doing so. So in exchange for that long-term commitment, they get a deferral of the tax that they would have owed on that capital gain, potential reduction of the tax that they would have owed on that capital gain. They will have to pay that after seven years. But then ultimately, if they hold those investments for uh, at least 10 years, then they will get uh, tax-free appreciation on that particular investment. So you pay the tax on the original gain, but on any future appreciation, it's tax-free. What it looks like in a lot of these zones is really real estate investments initially, but the second round of regulations that was just released a week ago opens the door to investing in operating businesses in these distressed economic zones. So a really interesting incentive that should redirect capital to generate returns for investors give them a tax benefit, and in theory, have positive impact on the communities they're being invested in. Now, there is risk that the impact isn't there in the end. Generating benefits for communities is a really tough thing to do. You've got to work with local stakeholders, the community, to make sure that the investments that you're making actually belong in and work. Change is capable. I'll give you two quick examples. One, I happened to be in this weekend, Asbury Park, New Jersey. I was there for a Springsteen event. Big shocker. But, you know, what a change. In fact, Bruce was commenting during this program how it's only 10, 15 years since the the turnaround has happened. And now more and more companies are getting in that area. And then on a larger front, my wife's a Michigan girl, so I better bring up Detroit. The city of Detroit, I would imagine, is considered an opportunity zone. At least it was in the beginning. And I see more and more companies like LinkedIn, for example, which just recently opened up their offices, I think, this week or, or last week. Is there one area of the country where there's more of these opportunity zones? So there are more than 8,700 of these opportunity zones. They exist in every single state and possession. They were actually proposed. The census tracts that are distressed were proposed by the governors of each state 
and they were allowed to nominate up to 25% of the census tracts in each state. And then they were approved by Treasury based on a set of criteria. So they exist across the nation in a variety of different rural, urban, and suburban locations as well. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of information out there. There are a lot of companies now that are getting in sustainable investing. And one of the things that we talk about on this show is you got to do your homework. UBS has put out a lot of work on this. Your team has done some specific, you know, really wonderful white papers and playbooks and a number of different things that people can look at. And we will link to that in our show notes. So you have an opportunity to do your research because again, there's a lot of noise, a lot of people talking about sustainable investing. But I think the most important thing is, is that you talk to your own financial advisor, you learn about what's happening and and do your own research. Last question I'd just like to throw in. Ten years ago, is this something either of you thought you'd be working in this space or were you working in this space? It's new for me. I was I was not doing this ten years ago. I always looked for roles where I felt like I could not only learn and grow professionally, but also have some sort of positive impact outside of an office. And so I'm thrilled that I'm able to work in an area like sustainable investing where I feel like I have that connection. Mm-hmm. So 10 years ago, I was running investments for a single-family office, and we had foundation assets. But the solution set in terms of being able to invest sustainably was very different back then versus what it is now. And so I think it's incredibly exciting what we've seen in terms of the growth of the sustainable investing space for the benefit of investors who really want to be able to generate returns as well as do good for the planet. So it's exciting, and it means a lot. I think it's important that UBS, and I think as a corporation, we feel that sustainability is at the core of what we do. And so being able to help people both with returns as well as having a positive impact on society and the environment is an important thing. Absolutely. And, and clearly universities are taking that seriously as well. There's definitely uh, sustainable investing degrees. I happen to know that because my son studied that at Penn State. And so it's good to see that you know, more and more universities are teaching people early and getting them involved in that entire world. Thank you very much, Andrew and Casey, for enlightening us more on what is, in my opinion, It's the most critical investment conversation that we could possibly have in 2019. As Eric Clapton wrote, you can change the world. Yes, I can actually quote other musicians besides Springsteen, but I will add, I do enjoy his new single, Hello Sunshine, so there is a little bit of an angle to uh, sunshine and the climate. So anyway, if you'd like to learn more about how you can take a closer look at sustainable investing, as I mentioned, I will add a number of links that should be helpful, or you can always contact our office for more details. Please share this podcast with your friends and family. And thank you so much for listening. And remember, no matter what, pay yourself first. Mm -hmm.